Over the past few weeks, we have been engaged in a series called Greater Things, Greater Things. And uh, that that series has uh, been life-changing for me. Uh, It has changed me. It's uh, made me realize that uh, how desperately I need Jesus Christ, but also how desperately I need you as my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Uh, that I cannot make it on this journey uh, without you being in my life and without uh, us walking on this journey together. Uh, Today, we're concluding this series uh, with the title, When Christians Make God Look Good. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Amen. So I would ask that you would uh, stand, and I would like to call your attention to Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 16. Uh, It's also in your pew Bibles on page 786. If you have it, say amen. 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 Let us uh, read together. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, put it on a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word lasts forever. Amen. You may be seated. When Christians make God look good. You know, at the former church in which I served every Wednesday, there was this mother who would come to church, and she would come on Wednesday to the noon Bible study and prayer service. And as I began to read this passage and study this passage, I could hear her voice. I could hear her singing Uh, This song, uh, she would sing it every Wednesday at 12 noon, and she would sing it like this. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And I heard her voice. She's gone home to be with the Lord now, but I can still hear her singing that song every time. I read this passage, and the reality of that song is that we as Christians have been called to be an influence in the world. 
We as Christians, all of us have a light by which God has given us through his son, Jesus Christ, to let shine wherever we find ourselves. And that light that we let shine through us is what we do when we make God look good. So the question that I want to ask you today, when do we make God look good? When do you make God look good? I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) Is it when we sing and come together in this beautiful edifice and we sing the songs of Zion together and we worship in spirit and in truth? I do think that makes God look good. Is it when we gather and engage and join in a ministry and use our various talents and our various gifts to edify the body of Christ and to advance his kingdom? I do think that that makes God look good. Is it when we encourage one another, when we see a brother or sister down and depressed and we encourage that brother a sister in the Lord, I, I do think that makes God look good, but also it makes God feel good. So all of us have a responsibility, as this text implies, that all of us have a responsibility to make God look good. So here we are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, talks about the Beatitudes, and it's kind of a a kingdom ethics that God gives those who follow him by which to live and operate in the world. Uh, One writer put it this way, that disciples must function in society as an alternative way and challenging and engaging the community. Uh, These Beatitudes that Jesus gives this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus shares with his audience, uh, speaks to us today. Verses 1 through 10, he, he is general in, in letting those know who are uh, under the sound of his voice that they are blessed if they do such and such a thing. But then he gets specific in verse 11 and begins to tell them in more specific terms uh, that You're called to make me look good. You're called to make God look good. So how do we make God look good? We make God look good when we have the right attitude about persecution. When we have the right attitude about persecution. Look at what he says in verse 11. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said, rejoice when you're persecuted for your faith. I don't know about you, when I read this passage, when I read these first two verses, they kind of rubbed me the wrong way because... I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't gotten to the point that when I'm persecuted, when 
people call me everything but a child of God. I have not gotten to the point where I clap glad hands and rejoice over that. Now, some of you may have made it to that level. Amen. (laughs) And I remember in Acts where, where Peter and James and John were brought before the Sanhedrin and they were brought because they had done a good work. They had healed a man at the gate called Beautiful and the Sanhedrin warned them and told them not to speak in that name again. And before they left, it says that they were flogged, they were beaten. And it says as they left the presence of the Sanhedrin that they began to rejoice that they had suffered in the name of Jesus. I, 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 I haven't gotten there yet to the point where I can rejoice that I have been persecuted, that I have suffered in the name of Jesus. And, and Jesus says, says this in the imperative, rejoice and be glad. And brothers and sisters, I need you to pray for me as I pray for you because there are brothers and sisters all over this world who are suffering for the cause of Christ. They are suffering because they are in enemy territory. They are in in dangerous areas. They are in harm's way and they are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ valiantly, triumphantly. Brothers and sisters, God calls us to rejoice and be glad. He says, you're in good company because they persecuted the prophets that way. They persecuted Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel that way. So you're in good company. Scripture tells us that those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know, I'm afraid that when we as Christians in these United States of America, uh, we, we look at suffering or persecution as having not, having not enough money in our bank account. Uh, we look at persecution as waiting in traffic too long. <laughs> but I'm afraid that we as Christians in America suffer from a case of domestic Christianity that we have become good Christians. When the culture tells us to sit, we sit. When the culture tells us to stand up, we stand up. We have become domestic Christians. We have become so domesticated that we have failed to realize that we are first and foremost citizens of heaven first and citizens of earth second. And our heavenly citizenship should dictate how we operate on earth. So we should not wed ourselves to any political party. We should not wed ourselves to any ideology of our day because we get our cues from heaven first and earth second. And so the question is, what does heaven have to say about what we're going through on earth? 
One of the things I noticed about Jesus is that he never wedded himself to any political party, to any religious party. Jesus kept a neutral ground and he began to speak to the people of his day from a, from a position that he is a, a citizen of heaven, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. One writer said that persecution has its it's benefits. No one likes to talk about persecution, but it, it comes with the territory of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Persecution gives us a testimony. If we never go through anything, we don't have anything to testify about. Persecution authenticates our faith. It makes us real. It helps us to take off our mask and be real about being a follower of Christ. Persecution strengthens our faith. It gives us spiritual stamina. It conditions us, makes us authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And it serves as an example to the others, to others who follow us. It serves as an example when we model the behavior that we want to see in others. It serves as an example. It encourages others. It seems to me, it seems to me that some of us as Christians, uh, we audit the Christian life. You know what an audit is. If you, when I was in undergrad, I took an audit class, an economics class. And when I took that class, I signed up for it knowing that I wouldn't have to turn in any assignments. <laughs> knowing that all I had to do was show up at the class, listen to the professor talk about economics, and write some notes whether if I felt like it. <laughs> Amen, somebody. <laughs> The semester, I didn't get a grade. All it said is he attended. Some of us have audited the Christian life. We show up at church every Sunday, never engaging anyone, getting to know a brother or sister in Christ. We show up at church every Sunday never willing to get involved in a ministry, never willing to share our talents and our gifts with the body of Christ. We, we show up never, really, never wanting to sign up and be, become a part of a small group where we are stretched and we are challenged to grow and held accountable. We audit the Christian life. And God is calling us to live beyond the level of mediocrity and engage in this community of faith that God calls University Presbyterian Church. Amen, somebody. So I want to encourage you today, don't audit the Christian life. Following Jesus is a wonderful journey. There's never a dull moment when you really follow Jesus. Because one day you're going to get a grade. There's no way you can audit the Christian life if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we make God look good when we, when we have a seasoned attitude. 
a seasoned attitude. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus uses this metaphor to to describe the, the role that every Christian plays in society. Jesus uses this metaphor of salt. Now, we know that salt now as well as then was used probably more so then as a preservative. There was no refrigeration, and so they would put salt on the meat to to preserve it. But also salt was used to, to add flavor to the particular food that they were eating at the time, and salt was added to wheat and and to preserve that as well, but it was also added to add flavor to something. But also salt, one of the writings says that salt was used when a baby was born that the doctor would put salt on the baby. Now, I don't know why. (laughs) But I thought it was interesting. was a seasoning and this context seems to imply what Jesus is saying about the use of salt in this day and time the rabbis of Jesus they use salt as a symbol for wisdom as a symbol for wisdom context says here that salt losing its saltiness we know that salt is a pure compound that Salt really can't lose its saltiness because it's a pure compound unless it's mixed with something. But if salt is, salt is what salt does. It seasons. And so when it says it loses saltiness, the the implication here or the literal meaning is, it says here in the text that it's, it's foolish. It has a foolishness about it. It becomes foolish if it loses its seasoning, its impact. Paul says in Colossians 4 and 9, he says, let your speech be full of grace and season with a little salt. I think what Paul is implying there and what Jesus is implying here is that salt adds flavor, adds wisdom, godly wisdom to the conversation that God expects us to live salty lives wherever we are that wherever we are whether in our neighborhoods on our jobs God expects us to speak out and to speak up and to give divine wisdom give divine flavor to the conversation what does God have to say about that I remember when I was growing up as a kid, I had some cousins who lived in Washington, D.C. They lived in the big city of Washington, D.C., and we lived in Augusta, Georgia. And my cousins would come and stay with my grandmother, and my grandmother 
Uh, you know, she, was, she, she believed in the word of God. She believed in the Bible. And one of my cousins brought his girlfriend to the house. And they were going to stay at my grandmother's house, Brother Charles, for the week. Grandmama said, now, honey, y'all can't stay in the same room together. Now, you sleep in this room, and he sleeps in that room. And because y'all not married yet. And what grandmama was really doing was adding salt to the conversation. <laughs> she was seasoning that young woman and her grandson. That in her house and under her roof that you were not going to live in sin. And, and that's what living a seasoned life and having a seasoned attitude does in the community that we live in, in the neighborhood that we live in. So if you are a politician, you ought to be giving, you ought to be giving God's perspective on a particular situation. If you are a teacher, you ought to be uh, giving God's perspective on a situation. If you are a doctor, you ought to be giving God's perspective, adding a little seasoning to the situation. Wherever we find ourselves, God wants us to live seasoned lives. Amen, somebody. Last but not least, we make God look good when we have a light-giving attitude, a light-giving attitude. Look at what he says in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No, no one, after lighting a lamp, put it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, this is an interesting statement. Jesus tells the disciples, you are the light of the world. And in many ways, Jesus is telling the disciples that I want you to continue the work that I'm doing. I am the true light. And then he says, I want you to continue the work. So he's, he's passing the baton on to them and letting them know you are the light of the world. But also, Jesus is saying this from a community standpoint. He's saying this from a communal standpoint. Jesus uses this, this metaphor of light to describe the disciples' influence in society. That you're going to be in some dark places. But I want you to let your light shine. You're going to be in some places where it, it looks like it's light. But I want you to be a light in that particular situation. You're going to be in some dark areas and I want you to push back the darkness with your light. Brothers and sisters, this, this light that Jesus is referring to this, the imagery in this section is that of a brightly lit city on a hilltop, representing the corporate effect of the combined lights of individual disciples. The combined lights that we are better together, that we can make an impact when we bring our lights together. It's one thing to have one flashlight, 
But when you got 200 flashlights, you can light up the whole place. And this is what this passage is implying, brothers and sisters, that we are called to bring our collective lights together. As a matter of fact, that's what this kindred initiative that we are engaged in as a church between Evangelical Chinese Church and Damascus International Fellowship, that we have decided as three churches to bring our collective lights together and operate as one church from October 14th to November 18th. We have called, we have, we have, we have committed ourselves to coming together as one church and operating, studying the word of God together, fellowshipping together, serving together as one collective community. Because at the end of the day, there's no such thing as a black light or a white light or a yellow light or a green light in God's kingdom. Jesus didn't say that you are the black light of the world. You are the white light of the world. He says, let your light so shine. Thank you, brother. Because we are better together. You see, when we are quiet, when we should be speaking up, we're covering our lights. When we go along just to get along, we're covering our lights. When we're denying the light that God has given us, we're covering up our lights. When we let sin fester into our lives, we dim the light that God has given us. We need to deal with the sin in our lives. God has called us to make it plain, to explain to others the light that we have in us. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to be a beacon of truth. Don't cover your light. Don't cover your light on your job. Don't cover your light in your home. Don't cover your light in the school, but let your light shine. You know, whenever I go to the movies, there's always, bless you, <laughs> there's always previews or trailers of the coming attraction. And usually what the director does, he will take the best clips, the fighting clips, the love clips, Amen, somebody. <laughs> the chasing scenes, and he would bring all of those scenes together to create an attraction and an appetite for you wanting to see the movie. The movie makers show you the best clip because they want you to tune in to the whole show. Now, the movie in and of itself might be terrible but you'll never know it by the clips. What am I trying to say? Well, one day there will be a big show coming to town. 
And that big show, brothers and sisters, God is the producer. The Holy Spirit is the director. And Jesus is the superstar. But in the meantime, you are a trailer of the coming attraction. In the meantime, you are a clip for what's coming down the road. In the meantime, God wants you to be a trailer of his grace, to let people know that his grace is sufficient and his mercies are new every morning. In the meantime, God wants you to be a trailer of his love. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. In the meantime, God wants you to be a trailer of his peace. My peace I leave with you. He will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. In the meantime, God wants you to be a trailer of his grace and his mercy and his love. Amen? Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of being the salt of the earth. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being the light of the world. We thank you for this divine responsibility that you have given us as a collective community of faith, dear God. And Lord, may we not be domesticated Christians, but that we would be Christians who would follow you wholeheartedly and live a courageous life, and to say what no one else is willing to say, and to do what no one else is willing to go do, and go where no one else is willing to go. Lord, will you make it so in our lives as collective community of faith? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.